Welcome to the first episode of Season 3. I'm your host, Rich Easton, telling tales from beautiful Charleston, South Carolina. And for everybody that's just tuned in, Happy New Year's. 2022, and we're still dealing with face masks, vaccines, closed businesses, reduced hours at some of our favorite restaurants. We're drawing lines in the sand with family and friends as it pertains to vaccinations. Hey, as far as I'm concerned, it all boils down to trust. Like in any and every relationship, who do you trust to provide you with the right information to make a decision that best suits your personal needs as well as those around you? (laughs) It kind of sounds like a commercial, doesn't it? You remember how old you were or who told you the truth about Santa Claus, the Tooth Fairy, the Easter Bunny, and all about sex. Most likely, they weren't the ones who protected you and told you all these stories to carry on a tradition of prevaricating for the purpose of behavior modification. Are you going to be naughty or are you going to be nice? Because nice just makes everybody's life easier and you get more stuff. At least that's the tale that spun for us. Most likely the person who broke the real story to you was likely an older sibling or a friend who had older siblings. So if all these wonderful stories that made you feel good were all made up, what else is made up? I mean, imagine poor Dorothy when she gets a peek behind the curtain to see that the great Wizard of Oz, the great and powerful Wizard of Oz, was just a politician from Kansas. She then would begin the process of calling bullshit on just about everybody around her. I mean, that's why there wasn't an Oz 2. I mean, that would have just been a tale about a pissed-off working woman who called bullshit on her boss for salary disparity between men and women, unfair maternity leave practices for stay-at-home partners, and her fight to unsee the governor of Kansas for taking bribes under the table from different chemical companies for, wait a minute, <laughs> I think that was Aaron Brockovich. My personal turning point on the trust spectrum had little to do with any of the childhood fables or cartoon holidays. My parents didn't invest a lot of time, effort, or mental currency into fabling up the truth about the holidays. So when I learned the facts of life, I was like, yeah, that makes sense. My trust spectrum turning point was Hell Week at my fraternity. Now, I'm not going to reveal the name of the fraternity, but like a thousand other chapters, we also thought that Animal House was written all about us. Every fraternity, at least when I went to school, had a hazing process, and I didn't take it too seriously. My brother, my real brother, was already a member. He was a brother of the fraternity, and I also was a lacrosse player. We had lacrosse players in the fraternity. So it was almost like, unless I really stepped on my wong, I was going to get into the fraternity. But like everything, everything that's good is good until it's bad. 
So we had something called Help Week. We didn't call it Hell Week for the obvious reasons. And what we had to do as pledges is we had to paint the fraternity house over the course of a week. We weren't allowed to sleep. No sleep. So brothers would, you know, we would sit in beds. We'd be painting and maybe we could take breaks. But brothers around the fraternity would be guarding to make sure. And as we're falling asleep, they would hit these bells or these horns or, or you know, slap us, you know, until we awoke again. And so no sleeping. They would follow us to our classes. They they knew what e- where each of the pledges were taking classes and they would sit down on those classes just to make sure we didn't use that hour for sleeping. So no sleep. Free to go to classes, free to work if any of us had jobs, but you couldn't sleep. So now we have to repaint this 10-bedroom fraternity house in all of these different colors purposely. And I would tell you by the fifth day, all of the color colors looked great to me. And they were clearly the spectrum Um, of the color wheel but after five days of staying up straight everything looks the same no sleep enough food to get by but your brain starts playing tricks on you when the human brain is deprived sleep little things become big things so on day five a few hours before we're indoctrinated into the fraternity we're all told that two of our fraternity brothers ratted on us and told the dean all these horrible things about us and now that the charter was at stake it's going to be revoked and so now everybody's now even you hear it now and you're like that sounds stupid but five days of no sleep you're bonding and all of a sudden you hear this there's a possibility all this hard work you've done is going to be for nothing And now this fraternity where you've met all these brothers you got along is going to be disbanded all because of these two guys. And I think the guys, their names were Brooksy and Barnsey. How's that for frat names? So now we're told that Brooksy and Barnsey have gone to the dean. They've got the charter. And by the way, they're packing their stuff. They're upstairs. They're about to leave. They've got the charter with them. Go get them. And so we're all running up the stairs to the second floor to get them. I don't know why we're getting them or what we're going to do when we get them. But look, five days of no sleep. You're told to do something. You go do it. So now we're all running up there. I don't know what we're going to do. We're going to get the charter back. We all run into the room. I'm the last guy going up the stairs. I don't know why, but I was. Everybody else is. I get up into the room and everybody is laughing. And there is Brooksy and Barnsey sitting on the the top of these two bunk beds and they're up there and they've got something in their hands and they're laughing and I don't know what happened something clicked in my brain and I just started running towards Barnsey pull his legs pull him off the top and I'm about to throw some haymakers and all the other fraternity brothers are holding me back and I'm yelling I'm probably crying and stuff I lost it I lost it and you know This must be what it was like for those guys who stormed the Capitol last January. So it just took an incident like that uh, to make me question everything. Anything that seems untruthful or something that just doesn't fit together, I'm kind of like Monk, that's when I get a little hesitant to buy into it. And I am the farthest thing from a conspiracy theorist. 
I don't buy into that either. But just some things just don't see right. NFTs, non-fungible tokens. That might be something in the future. I mean, digital art is going to have a value. The value goes up. But I've seen some things that look like some kids did kindergarten scratch work and somebody wants to put a value on that and they want to put it in their portfolio and put it in their electronic bank. Hey, I don't get it, but I'm a boomer. Maybe I'm not supposed to get it. I mean, who are we supposed to believe, scientists or politicians? Scientists invented OxyContin. That didn't go over too well. Politicians broke into the Democratic campaign headquarters at Watergate. I mean, scientists invented a vaccine for polio in the 1950s. Politicians signed the Social Security Act. Both of those were good. Okay, so for me, I'm going to cherry pick the information that appears to benefit society as a whole as well as me as an individual. Once I learn that something is said to benefit both, then I might trust it. But I also reserve the right to change my mind. So I hope I've made the right decision about the vaccine and the booster, as well as investing in Amazon, Apple, Tesla, PayPal, and healthcare EFTs. If not, then the only one I have to blame is myself. You're, You're a fucking idiot. Year 2022. New Year's resolutions. I find it somewhat ironic that we make this grandiose statement about something we're going to do more of or less of in the impending months and days, just seconds after the ball drops in Times Square. Those statements any time during the year when, for some reason, change is necessary. You know, things like losing weight, better body sculpting, better eating, more savings, Get out more, stay in more, play more golf, play less golf. All right, scratch that one. Did you know that the character that I talk about often on the podcast, Billy the Kid, notched over 300 rounds of golf in 2020? What could his resolution possibly be in 22? Play even more golf? When I was working full time, I used to make these public statements about my New Year's resolutions, primarily because people would ask, and I had to have this plan. I had to have this elevator speech ready. My entire corporate life was about a plan. So I'd have a thing like, I want to hire better people. I want to develop more people. I want to promote more people. Like a mouse. And then one day I read this book by Jack Welsh, who used to be the CEO of General Electric, and he puts employees into like three buckets, A, Bs, and Cs. A's are the guys you want to... These are the guys you want to lead your company. B's are the guys you want to try and make A's, but you could still work with B players. And C's, you got to phase out. So another year resolution, I'm like, I got to phase out more people that I can't get to B's or A's. Yeah, so the year after year mantra was continuous improvement. Two weeks ago, um, this character that I call the Tin Man, who plays at Charleston National, shoots a 68. That's well below his age. You know, he's already set his goals for 2022. Continue to shoot his age or lower. Replace his ankle and to catch more fish. And I would just add one more. And I think that everybody who's played with the Tin Man would agree with me. 
keep breaking your personal records, but for God's sake, ixnay on the ankle say. We get it. In spite of their tremendous amount of bodily pain and suffering you have to endure, you can still break par and beat most of us, many of us, some of us, and definitely me. I'm talking about the streak. You have to respect the streak. The guys at the COVID cabana that I talk about every once in a while have a master streak exceeding 80 straight Fridays of cocktails and stories. I mean, that's all because of our own Jeff Parrish never giving up holidays in clement weather or even a contiguous neighbor throwing a bucket of contentious bullshit on the event when he broke the tradition and brought his concubine, who, as I understand it, spent a lot of time talking about conspiracy theories and the fact that Stevie Wonder is not really blind. For once in my life, I have someone who needs me, someone I've needed so long. Streaks in golf are remarkable. And after watching Tiger and Charlie rip off 11 birdies in a row at the PNC Championship, it made me reflect on some of my golf streaks. I played a round of golf in Las Vegas where I parred 18 consecutive holes. And at the end of the round, all I could think of were seven birdie putts that should have gone in. That's what happens when you're on a streak. I've had three turkeys. I like to call them hat tricks. The last one was at Charleston National. Holes 8, 9, and 10, which for me are typically really difficult holes. Typically, after the three of those combined, I'm somewhere around three or four over par. So imagine to my dismay, after those three holes, I'm three under par until somebody in my foursome reminds me about who I am. And it's like, Rich, that's just, not, when are you going to come play golf? And that's all you need. I found myself. And uh, that's typically what happens when people try and remind you that, hey, you're not immortal. You know, you're like a 10 handicap. When is that going to happen? That's typically when it happens. Cloudy Graves and I were talking the other day about streaks and how many birdies in a row. He also had three in a row, at least more than one time. But then he tells me this other funny story. These guys went on a golf trip where their accommodations were short of beds. In other words, some guys had a bunk together. Women do it all the time. But for guys, it's just awkward. So they came up with a rule. And here's the rule. You can sleep hole to hole. And you could sleep pole to pole, but never sleep pole to hole. Yeehaw! So last week I'm playing golf with Southern Brad and Dr. Payne. We played at Crowfield. A few episodes, I was beaming about the golf track in Goose Creek. The first time I played it, I had a fairly good round. I left the course conquering the hole number six. It's the number one handicap on the hole um, with a birdie with an incredible drive, great approach shot, and then make the putt. I returned to the golf course last week, and for some reason, it looks entirely different from the first time I played it. It might have something to do with my first drive of the day. I, I lose it. I lose the ball. And so it's like, what a way to start a round of golf. 
But as we get up to each green, it's a Wednesday. So a lot of people call Wednesday hump days. The greenskeeper took that literally, and he took each of the pins on every hole, and he put it on the ridge, on the top of a hump. These greens here, and I don't know why I didn't remember this last time, maybe the pins were in the middle of the greens, but he has these pins up on these mounds. These mounds are more pronounced than the ones at Charleston Municipal Golf Course, where they built it to resemble some Scottish golf course. And so when you get up there, there are some holes where the pitch is way higher than six feet. So some of these these humps or ridges are severe. So you've got to have a strategy of either trying to hit the ball up to the top of the ridge even let it roll off the green because the greens were fast and either chip it on or try and put it on, but don't put it too hard because if you do, the ball keep trickling till it gets to the peak and then fly all the way down to the other side of the greens. The other option was hit it to the middle of the green, let the ball fall down the pitch, and then you have an uphill putt. I mean, they say uphill putts are a lot easier than downhill putts, but we tried that a few times and a few of us, including me, probably more than once, would hit it up the hill. It would get to the crest, stop, and then go all the way back, even farther than you were the first time. So that became a dicey strategy. We're trying to develop a strategy of what's best to do. I could not fit. None of us could figure it out on the front nine. Then we get to the back nine, and Southern Brad makes a comment. He's like, I didn't par one hole on the front. He had a birdie. And I said, well, you could have missed your birdie putt for a par. But now he gets to the back and he's like, I've had it. And he get, he tees off on 10, crushes a drive. And I'll tell you, he had four pars in a row. And these holes were as difficult on the back as they were on the front. He figured it out. And then I think after that, he might have had a blow up hole or he might have three putted a hole. Then he goes back and he has three more in a row. He figured it out. And we're laughing about the streak. I'm like, what is a streak? Is it three? Is it four? And he's like, man, I don't know, but it was a quick one. But the story doesn't end there. He goes back on New Year's Eve day to play with another friend of ours, Alfie. And he ends up with a slew of pars. And I'm sure a few birds, he figured it out because I don't think they changed their pin position, but he figured it out. He didn't get negative. I think once you exclaim, I suck, or how are we going to do this? How are we going to even par this hole? You leave, you're banished from the kingdom of I can, and you end up in the swamp of I can't. And when you have a bad shot or hole, Like Ted Lasso says, you just got to be a goldfish and forget it and then move on to the next hole. Yeah. So the words of wisdom, just be a goldfish. Hey, Sam, come here a sec. (sighs) Coach, I'm I'm sorry. You know what the happiest animal on earth is? It's a goldfish. You know why? No. Got a 10 second memory. Be a goldfish, Sam. Is this guy for real? Surely you can't be serious. I am serious. And don't call me Shirley. Have you ever had to change cell phone carriers while keeping the same cell phone? It's not easy. 
So during the process, we visit both a Verizon and, and an AT&T store because the SIM card exchange didn't work at first. So now we end up at this AT&T store and the guy who's working there is really a nice kid. He's trying to do the best he can to help us out. And we're sitting there for a while, easily 20 to 30 minutes. And we look over and we see this guy with a service dog. And the one thing we both know is just don't mess with a service dog. You don't go up, you don't pet him and stuff. You just leave him be. So we're talking and we mentioned they were close enough. The guy was close enough that we were talking about what a cool looking dog it was. And the guy looks at us, he bends down, he unleashes his dog. Dog still has the harness with the words service dog. And he goes, hey, Rosie, go say hi to those people. And it's the cutest pit bull. And he kind of walks over slowly. And you could tell he's very docile, very friendly. And um, so he's letting us pet a service dog, which is kind of unheard of. But it was kind of nice of him to do that. So now we're commenting about the dog and how cool it is. And he's like, yeah, the dog's name is Rosie. The dog was in combat with me. And we fought in, I don't remember the number of missions, but it was a lot and he would jump out of planes with Rosie. Matter of fact, he even pulled out his phone to show us a picture of him and Rosie. The only thing is it was a picture of him with a German Shepherd. So, or we don't even know if it was him. There was a army guy with a German Shepherd. So that was like the first, huh, that's interesting. So now we're petting, I'm petting Rosie. He's the coolest docile dog. I'm sitting in this chair. Rosie's snugged up against me. And now he's telling me the story about he's been in all these combat missions and Rosie has killed 35 of the enemy. And I'm sitting there petting this dog and I'm thinking, what if this dog has a flashback? But I'm petting him. He seems like really docile and Trace is petting him and stuff. And I'm like, wow, how did he do that? And the guy goes, he bit off their dick and their balls. I'm like, what? This dog is inches from my crotch. I'm sitting here petting him. He's telling me this story. Now I'm starting to get nervous. And I'm thinking, if I get nervous, is the dog going to sense that I'm nervous? Am I going to become an enemy? And so I'm, I'm petting less, but we get into more conversations with this guy. And this guy, by the way, is wearing fatigues. And, you know, which is interesting. I mean, I've met people that have served before. And um, typically, the more action that they've seen, the less they talk about it. But not everybody's the same. And, you know, you don't know what kind of mental fatigue that this gentleman had when he was fighting in all these missions. So now he's telling us the story about Rosie killing all these people. I'm getting a little nervous. I'm petting less. Then he goes on to tell us a story about not too long ago, He's in a bar with his girlfriend and he's there with Rosie and it's a biker bar. And somehow uh, his girlfriend says to one of the bikers, um, hey, would you like to pet Rosie? And the guy makes some really snide comments about how ugly the dog is. I'd never, you know, whatever that is. But that got this guy a little <laughs> off center. And I'm going to call him Black Ops Burke. So Burke got a little sideways with this guy. Next thing Burke tells us, he's threatening the guy and threatening that the dog's going to kill him. 
and that he was surrounded by all of these Navy SEALs. This thing escalated. In se- the way he tells the story, it's like he's back in the story. And then here's the piece de resistance. He's telling the story. He reaches in his pocket. He pulls out a switchblade and clicks it. And now the blade goes off. And now he's telling the story about how he had the blade. And <laughs> he's like reliving the story. So now Tracy, who always thinks on her feet, is very good at the act of deflection. She immediately just goes, can you believe it? Verizon and AT&T just can't get their act together. He just clicked back to normal, clicks his knife back, puts it in his pocket, starts laughing. And I'm like, it's crazy. And we just completely got on our problem of having the two companies being incompatible And our guy couldn't help us solve this problem. It has since been solved. It's a long story. Uh, Thank you for Ari for helping me out on this one. But Tracy starts getting into the problems we're having. We step up. We say our goodbyes. Thank you for your service. And we walk out. We walk out almost backwards, always facing him just to make sure that he's not going to sick Rosie on us or he's not going to do anything, throw the knife. I don't know. We walk out of the store. We're walking slowly. We back at, get into the car. While we're still looking in the store, she turns on the car. We pull out. We look at each other and said, was that guy for real? I mean, who in their right mind tells stories like this and they're real? So whether it was real or it wasn't real, he pulled a knife out in the middle of the store. That was real. I mean, can you believe this guy? Antonio Brown. You just don't see that every day, do you? It was at this moment that he knew he fucked up. But before I talk about Antonio, um, I thought first I'd talk a little bit about Tom Brady since he probably had a lot to do with Antonio coming to the Bucks. I've talked about my my respect for Tom Brady and the way he dedicates himself to excellence. I listen to his podcast weekly. I enjoy the way he describes his game prep and execution. When he fails, he clearly shows disappointment and takes personal responsibility. When he wins... He, he basically talks about his teammates and he's complimentary about all of those that contributed to his win. Well, Antonio Brown is not going to be his focal point this week to talk about the win. It's 2022 and the politically correct thing to say is that Antonio needs therapeutic help to dimensionalize his issues so that he can move forward in life. And that's what I anticipate that Tom's going to say. And in our woke environment, I think a lot of people in a position of getting sued are probably going to all say the same thing. If you're a Pittsburgh Steelers fan, you've probably already had your fix of AB. I started paying attention to Antonio when the ESPN show Hard Knocks followed the Raiders in preseason the year A.B. signed a contract there. And as they were showing all the players and showing John Gruden, you didn't see a lot of A.B. because he had these turf toe issues that prevented him from too much practice, certainly couldn't play any preseason games. 
But you could tell the Raiders organization and John Gruden was excited about securing such an offensive weapon. And he played zero games with the Raiders. After having a verbal altercation with the general manager, Mike Mayock, he's fined $215,000 and went into free agency. He then, in a day or so, he gets picked up by the Patriots for $10.5 million for a one-year contract. About that time, or at least a day or so later, after he signs the contract, his former trainer, Brittany Taylor, files a civil lawsuit against him saying that he sexually assaulted her on at least three occasions. Now, after she makes that statement, both Antonio's agent and his attorney both um, deny the allegations. And of course, you'd expect him to do that. But then more comes out about A.B.'s misconduct, and he tries to intimidate Brittany, and then he gets exposed for doing that. The Patriots then let him go after playing one game. So then he tries out with the Saints, and nothing happened there. But this year, Tom Brady convinces his GM and coach to gamble on A.B. because he needs more offensive weapons. And either Antonio Brown could be so convincing, or Tom just believes he can get everyone on the same page to focus on winning, winning enough games to get into the postseason, winning enough postseason games to go to the Super Bowl. So either AB is a great salesperson, or Tom believes that he could get everybody on the same page, or both. So in this season, Antonio shows some signs that he could add value to the offense. He makes some pretty good catches, gets some pretty good yards. But then he gets caught with a fake Vax card. I mean, this is only a month or so after Aaron uh, goes through what he went through with the vaccination. So now AB gets caught, probably didn't want to go through with what Aaron went through and decides, hey, I'm going to get myself a fake Vax card so I don't have to deal with that. He gets caught. He gets suspended for three games. So then comes Sunday's game at MetLife Stadium in New York, not the friendliest of crowds. And in the third quarter, Antonio Brown loses it. And apparently his coach is asking him to go into the game on several occasions. He doesn't go in. It's not like, well, it doesn't matter why he did it. It doesn't matter because what he did is so ridiculous. But even if the coach wouldn't play him, he's like, I, I've had enough. If you're not going to play me, I'm not going to play. Certainly no excuse for a strip tease. But apparently the coach wants, wants him in there and he doesn't want to go in. Maybe he's injured. Maybe the injury is bigger than what the trainers say it is. I don't know. But he refuses to go in. They have a little fight on the sidelines. That's when he proceeds to walk away and nobody could stop him. And then he starts doing this strip tease and the public is watching him walk off the field. He's throwing his uniform and his gloves up to the fans. And now he's walking around to where most of the jet fans are and he's giving him the peace sign and he walks off. I mean, the last time I saw an NFL player do that was, let me think, never, never. 
I mean, the character Ned Braden in the movie Slapshot did something like that to protest against unnecessary fighting in ice hockey. And that was a comedy that was written. Those were actors. This is real life. What was A.B. protesting? I mean, the Bucks had a win without him, and they did. Nobody is bigger than the game. Nobody. So many people have written him off in the past. This one is, I mean, (laughs) the best of the best. Most people say he'll never surface again in any football game, NFL, CFL, whatever it is. I say, watch for Jacksonville next year. They could certainly use a wide receiver. I mean, either that or he's already endeared himself to the Jets, so who knows where he's going to show up. You've been listening to an episode of Tales from the First Tee. I'm your host, Rich Easton, telling tales from beautiful Charleston, South Carolina. Talk to you soon.